From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who make it all happen. The first week of May is traditionally Teacher Appreciation Week, and to help celebrate our local teachers, we're turning to our Kids Media and Education Department. Our special focus is on the PBS Digital Innovators Initiative, and we'll get to hear from four of these outstanding teachers in just a few minutes. But first, to introduce us to the DI programmer, Hannah Daw, who is associate producer of Youth Media and Educator Engagement, and her colleague, Christina Kirtley, senior producer of Content and Youth Engagement. To both of you, welcome to WNET Up Next. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. I was hoping you could set the stage for us by telling us a bit about the Kids Media and Education Group in a large sense. Kids Media and Education really is involved in a range of initiatives that serve families, children, youth, teachers, uh, educators, pretty much the whole education space, mostly focused on a K-12 and early learning age range. And we produce television, and we also do a lot of work with teachers and educators. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work that we've done has been workshops and things where we're trying to introduce educators to using media in the classroom. But we also realize that teachers are experts in their field and that we can learn from them. And that's sort of one of the reasons why we really were excited to get involved with the PBS Digital Innovator Program. Okay. Well, Hannah, just what is the PBS Digital Innovators Project and how did it come to be? The PBS Digital Innovators Program is actually a national initiative through PBS. So we started this local chapter of the WNET PBS Digital Innovators, which is really a local teacher recognition group. It's bringing together a community of educators, K through 12, for ongoing professional development and growth and learning, but also really just to provide an opportunity for educators to share strategies with each other, learn from each other, learn about the opportunities that their local PBS station has to offer in terms of digital resources or events or any of the things that Christina kind of just spoke about that the Kids Media and Education Department does. And so the program is a two-year journey with educators from across our viewing area. And it's a space to meet and gather and be together for these two years. And how did you find these teachers? How were they chosen? As Christina mentioned, we have had relationships with teachers over the years in various capacities, sometimes from meeting them at a workshop that we held. Sometimes we've worked with their classroom. Sometimes we've had them collaborate or consult on media resources that we've created. And so as we were developing this program, launching it in 2020, we kind of had a, a brainstorm from across our department about who are the educators we've worked with who we just, we want to deepen that relationship and we want to learn more from them and, and we want to honor them. So some of the educators we've worked with are folks that we knew. And then another part of the educators were people that were recommended to us. So we reached out to partners and colleagues and we told them who we were looking for, which was really kind of these classroom change makers, who are the teachers that they knew who were really teaching boldly, that's kind of the digital innovator phrase, teach boldly, and who are interested in media, maybe they don't have to be the best, most tech savvy teacher, but who use it in creative ways and who are thinking about it. Could you give me an example of what it means to teach boldly? Sure. I mean, 
something that, you know, it's kind of hard to separate from this whole first cohort of teachers is it all happened during COVID. We've been so impressed by how these educators have stepped up and they really latched onto the importance of community and figuring out how to maintain a sense of community in their classroom for one year, they were pretty much all remote. And so that first year when we were getting to know these educators, the way that they were being innovative and creative and even just like having classroom discussions that were meaningful in a way that they were trying to keep the students engaged, they had to relearn how to do so much of what they found was important in building community in their classroom. And I feel like that's one thing that really sticks out to me. I get the real sense that they were really learning from each other all the way in this process. Absolutely. And they've all shared with us that that's been something that's been really meaningful to them as a group. None of them knew each other before, and they're coming from all different corners of our viewing area. And they've actually never even met in person to this day, right, Hannah? Like they still haven't seen each other, right? Everything's happened over a screen, but they've really gotten to know each other and They've developed relationships outside of our monthly meetings. One thing that was really important to both of us as we were pulling this group together is that we really wanted all of our educators to also have a focus on equity and making sure that classrooms are more equitable and just really kind of seeing their work through that lens, given how our station, how WNET, the WNET group, all of the work that Kids Media and Education does, we really try to serve and reach those audiences who maybe are not getting the kind of resources that it's not fair across the board. So it's, it, it was important to us to also include that. Serving the underserved. Yes. Always been part of the WNET group mission. Yes. We want to hear more from both of you, but right now let's turn to our teachers. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Jean Kim, who is an English language arts teacher teaching sixth and seventh graders at the 30th Avenue School in Queens, New York. Jean, welcome to WNET Up Next. Thank you. It's an honor. Now, your school, I read, is a citywide gifted and talented school. What exactly does that mean? It is. In New York City, there are five citywide gifted and talented schools, meaning our students come from all five boroughs. And what actually led you to teaching in the first place? I know that your undergraduate degree is from a college in Korea, but then you're here, master's degree uh, from an American college. How did teaching attract you? I do have to say, I think my father, as a professor, he definitely intrigued me into the teaching career. When I was in college, I tutored a lot and I also helped out my father's students in English. So my father was able to see me tutoring in the another room. And he actually recommended me to go to teacher's college to pursue my career in teaching because he thought I had some talent. <laughs> Thanks to my dad, that led me here because I felt like I wanted to really focus on English literature and I had a passion on literature analysis. But in Korea, when you're teaching English, it's mostly teaching English as a second language. I think that's why it, it led to me here. And I fell in love with teaching literature, especially to middle school students. That led me here to New York. Tell me about some of your experiences as a DI. I got extremely lucky 
joining the DI during the pandemic. If it weren't for the DI, if it weren't for Hannah and Christina, I would have felt stuck a lot. I'm creating lessons on a remote or a hybrid format. So I'm assuming you're back in the classroom at this point. Yes. And the kids are back in the classroom. Has there been a leftover pandemic fog? Definitely. There's two concerns that I have. One is there was always a gap, a gap in their level. But I feel like because of the pandemic, that gap had aggravated in a way because the students who weren't able to continue learning, some families didn't have the right devices. They didn't have enough laptops for all of their children. So some students struggled coming to classes, like joining the Zoom meetings. So I think right now, most of the teachers are really focusing on mending that gap. Mm -hmm. So there's more focus, there's more work on differentiation. There's more work on how we can assist our struggling students. Secondly, when it comes to social emotional learning, I feel like the students need more assistance there as well. I feel like they're more used to being behind the screen. There are some students who would play video games during class and they're just oblivious because they're so into the habit of not having a teacher around them. When they see me right behind them, they just, they're so surprised. It's a process for the students as well to just get back into the normal school habits. But as I said, it's a process for the kids. A lot of relearning mm -hmm. of how to be in a group and with other people. And I'd like to ask you, what are your great satisfactions being a teacher? I would think it would be challenging, but very rewarding. The beauty of being an English teacher is you're not only teaching students how to read and write. I feel like you also teach students how to basically be good people. I have the privilege to teach sixth and seventh graders. So just seeing them grow and becoming these mature, good kind people um, at the end, I think that's the most rewarding thing being a middle school teacher. And are you encouraged to have a long career in what you're doing? I hope so. I still see myself enjoying teaching. I would love to continue to be a teacher. I am right now in a school leadership program. So I am preparing to get my principal certificate. Mm -hmm. But to be honest right now, like my, my main passion is teaching. So I don't really see myself going to the administration field yet. I really enjoy teaching right now. Well, that is wonderful, Jean. We appreciate your talking with us today and all the best to you, one of our digital innovators, Jean Kim. And now our next teacher is Clemencia Acevedo, who is a special education teacher at Don Pedro Albizu Campos School in West Harlem. Clemencia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. How long have you actually been a teacher? This is my ninth year. I started teaching in 2013. And what led you to teaching? When I was in undergrad, and at that time I was attending Hunter College, I occasionally tutored my teenage nephew, and I felt that I was a good tutor, that I was a good teacher to him. So the time came towards the last year of my undergrad to decide what career to choose, and I always liked helping people. So I debated whether 
of becoming a teacher or becoming a lawyer, and I decided to go into teaching. And how's it been so far in your nine years? For me, I feel like I'm a lucky person. I'm a type of person who's always looking to learn new ways or new things. From early on, I became involved in being part of different communities of teachers. The first one was a community of the New York School Tech of Teachers in New York City. And um, I learned a lot from colleagues on how they were using technology in the classroom. I was so inspired by listening to teachers, how they would use technology to encourage the kids to learn, to engage them. So I started also exploring new technology tools to encourage my kids to learn. It's been great because I have been learning so much from teachers over the years and I can't complain. It's been great. You've had a great focus on digital literacy. Can you give me some examples of how that's really played out? Sometimes I could have a lesson that when I would be using a video and I would be playing the video, for example, on PBS Learning Media, we have lots of different videos around animals, where I can use them to study animal behavior or other videos that deal with history. So I would have a, a short clip and I would have the students watch the video and have a tech tools, let's say Jamboard with I could see the students' responses on site, immediately online on my screen, and the kids would find that very engaging. And following that, I would have another activity where I would have the kids, for example, draft a writing about the video, let's say using Google Docs, where I would have access to their writing in one folder online, and I would be able to give them feedback. And following that, I would have them use a tech tool for example, iMovie, where they would create a short movie based on the writing or the notes that they took from any given video. Very interesting. Now, the pandemic, I asked Jean, what's that been like to go through that experience for you and for your students? For me, it wasn't that challenging because I have been working over the years in using technology in teaching. So when the pandemic hit, I was ready to teach online. And I was also able to support other colleagues and my school administrators moving to this type of digital world or digital teaching. But for my students, when they were with me, they continue learning. Of course, it was challenging for them because they needed that social component to be with their friends, but they were able to provide work or do work for me. But once they came back in person to the building, it has been a little bit of a challenge because they were in their households for like a year or a year and a half where they didn't socialize with others. So some of them, not all of them, disrespectful. They lack manners. So we have to address that. I feel that right now we're not prepared to give students the services that they need and I'm talking about emotional and mental health. And I feel there isn't enough funding to provide the need that our students are calling from us. And I just wish moving forward that people will listen a little bit more to teachers so that they would hear what our kids need. And hopefully they allocate money so that they can hire counselors or more staff to support our kids in helping them with their mental health. There is a lot of discussion among educators 
where you can have the most amazing lesson, but if you have students where they come in angry and there is nobody to talk to that kid, the kid is going to be angry for usually the whole day and it's going to destroy the lesson plan that you spend like five hours, six hours preparing. And a lot of that's going on right now. Some kids come from abusive families, so they experience lot of, lots of trauma when they were with the parents or their family members. Some of them are in foster care. Unfortunately, not enough funding for mental health for students, but also for staff, because staff right now, the level of stress in the classroom is very high. So staff, people or teachers are very stressed out, tired. Mm -hmm. It might change hopefully in the future. That's why the DI is very important because it's a community where we get together and talk about our issues and we kind of hear what the other teachers are experiencing, what we are experiencing. So that means that, okay, so we are not alone. It's not like I am a bad teacher. No, it's, it's, it, the, the problem is bigger than, than just us. So it's a very supportive experience in that way. Yes. What's ahead for you? A career in teaching continues? I do like it. I do still enjoy being in the classroom. I enjoy meeting teachers who become my friends. That's the best part of being a teacher. I'm still undecided what my future holds in 15 years from now. I have been thinking of going for my administrative career, but I'm undecided because I do like being in the classroom. People ask me sometimes, well, would you like to work for the company? And I always say no, because I like being in the classroom. As of now, I will continue being a teacher. I always wanted to ask, do you bond with the kids every year? Teaching is kind of challenging because there are so many things that happen in the classroom. We are always very busy. It's never boring. We definitely have our moments, but one thing I like being with the kids is that they make me laugh. Uh, <laughs> I always laugh in the, in the day, so that makes me happy. As teachers, we are able to make connection with students, sometimes more with some than others. Yeah, I'm able to, I feel like I'm able to, to bond with students because teaching is one thing, but also sharing space and moments together. We become a family. In some cultures, for example, in the Latino culture, parents understand and even say that we as teachers are their second mothers because we as teachers spend more time with them. and. And we give them a structure. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And all the best to you going forward in all of your other activities. Oh, thank you. Before we move on, congratulations to Clemencia on being named one of the PBS Digital Innovator All-Stars nationally. Great honor. And now let's meet Kimberly Dickstein Hughes, who is New Jersey's Teacher of the Year in 2020 and who has had a long run at Haddonfield Memorial High School in New Jersey. And Kim, I understand you were actually married at school. I was. I was married in the courtyard of the high school where I teach. That's wonderful. All the kids uh, <laughs> were in attendance? Yeah, there are about 100 students and parents who attended. You originally were headed for a career in politics, but somewhere along the line... <laughs> you changed your mind and became a teacher. I think being an educator is a career in politics. All of us enter this field understanding that we are public servants and part of the fabric of this country. And so I knew whatever path that I choose, 
I wanted to give back and be part of that work. I thought that meant law. I thought that meant politics. I thought that meant D.C., and marching and knocking on doors. And I still actually probably do quite a few of those things. <laughs> um, but if you want to make a difference every single day at multiple points of your day, you become an educator. And I am very grateful I learned that lesson early. And you also had great influence from your grandmother, my sources yes. tell me. Yes. What was her influence on you to make this decision? Yeah, I spoke with my grandmother every morning of my life. And until her passing in 2008. And my grandmother would always say the same things to me. Listen to learn, learn to listen. The more you know, the more you grow. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And all of these lessons, I think, were part of that understanding that learning is at the core of everything that we do. And so to go through my days using that as my lens of understanding or just knowing like that's, I always had that to fall back on, right? Mm -hmm. Those mantras, if you will, I think did lead me on this path is that at my core, I was a learner and teachers are forever learners, a lifelong learner. Has teaching been what you expected it to be when you first started out? Well, not these last two years. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, why would that be? (laughs) Uh, I understand very well a a time for everyone, particularly teachers and students. Well, I'd say I'm going to backtrack, but, you know, I first entered the field of education. I could have never imagined how many decisions I would make in a day, how many questions I would answer in a day, how many times I'd hear my name in a day and how many hats I'd have to wear in a day. And that was in 2008 when I first started teaching. And so... You know, I never could have imagined that. And it was really challenging. My my first few years of teaching really tested my mettle, if you will. But I had really great mentors and participated in a lot of different professional learning opportunities that helped me grow as a teacher. And I do think so much way or form sort of prepared me in an an odd way (laughs) for these two years in the sense that you learn really early on in your career to be resilient and flexible. And that's everything we needed to be during the last two years. And so those early lessons, everyone became a first year teacher again, Tom, and had to rethink our lessons and reimagine our work and our understanding of its importance. And that's particularly challenging because everyone gets into patterns or practices that they become comfortable with and that was a very uncomfortable time. And so we had to really get creative, lean into our resiliency and flexibility to make it work. And how did you find the students responded to your efforts in that area? I think there have been phases. During the first few months of remote learning, I was on sabbatical and actually working with the New Jersey Department of Education and working with WNET and NJPBS on Learning Live. And that was the emergency relief effort that the New Jersey Department of Education, NJEA and WNET came together to film lessons every day for about four months. And So you were a TV teacher essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, New Jersey. My name is Kimberly Dixine Hughes, and I'm your 2020 New Jersey State Teacher of the Year. 
I know now is a strange time. You're at home instead of at school with your friends and teachers. But even though we aren't all in the same place, we're absolutely in this together. Monday through Friday, right here on NJTV. My role in that was really recruiting the educators. We had almost 200 educators rally in March of 2020 to volunteer their time to film lessons from their homes. And so those folks are the real digital innovators. Those folks are my heroes and will always be my heroes. And so I just really wanted to give them a shout out and thank them for really supporting all of this work and being a real community. And a lot of that work was focused on the wellness of our children and our community and making sure that people were okay, right? It was a very scary time. We were also very concerned with providing children with equitable educational experience during that time, because I think the last two years have forced everyone to think about what really matters. Yeah, I actually think that this year feels more challenging than last year's return to school. Educators and students rallied, you know, we're trying to get back. I think this year it's that adjustment, exhaustion, navigation period. And so I do think that overflow continues and I don't know when that wave will subside. The tide's high. <laughs> well, let's turn for a minute to the Digital Innovators Initiative. Yeah. What that has meant to you during this period of time. Being a digital innovator to me means using media, using these resources to connect whether that means connecting with my students or my colleagues or parents and community members or other digital innovators, all of that space leans in again to creativity, flexibility, and resiliency. And being a digital innovator means to keep trying and changing and creating. And so it's been a really empowering space to be a digital innovator. And would you say you've learned a lot from your fellow digital innovators in this process? Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> Any specific examples? Oh, what I think about in terms of the resources my colleagues have used on the PBS resources, how they integrate that into everyday classroom experiences, I think is really valuable. I also think the Unladylike series I saw quite a few of my colleagues using that. And then I integrated that into my own classroom activities and assessments, actually. That's been really valuable, seeing the content that's sparking conversation in other classrooms and seeing where that could take my students has been really valuable. And I know last fall, you actually got to go down to the White House to uh, hang out with President Biden. What was that like? Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, just spending some quality time with Joe on the South Lawn. (laughs) (laughs) Hanging out. You know, just hanging out. (laughs) So that was a belated, a belated recognition of your teacher of the year. Yeah. A year later, they got to do it. A year later. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. It is still an out-of-body experience. Like I can see myself sitting on the South Lawn, you know, second row in on the aisles, feeling like President Biden's making direct eye contact with me, and I'm bawling in the front thinking through every, it's like, this is your life moment. I'm sitting 
on the South Lawn listening to your president, who is married to an educator, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden is an educator and understands the needs of educators and prioritizes education. And so I felt seen and heard. And it wasn't just me. You felt right at home there. Let's yeah, face it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's got to be an empty room. Yeah. <laughs> so. There's so many challenges and opportunities to be a teacher. Do you think you want to continue teaching for a good long time into the future? I see myself as an educator first, wherever that space is. So whether that's in the classroom or on the hill or at the university level, I don't know. For me, the most important work that I'm doing is what I'm doing right now. Um, and that's where I'm really focused. Something the pandemic did teach me was to really slow down and think about how I can be the best educator right now. And maybe that opens other doors, but I can still be an advocate and an ally and a policy influencer right from A209, uh, which is my classroom. And that's probably the place where I have the greatest influence. It sounds like exciting things are happening. Yes, very exciting. I'm sorry, I just got so excited. I was just using the PBS resources. There's so much Shakespeare content. I teach a Shakespeare course and my students are conducting a Shakespeare reading and their own adaptations of Shakespeare at a local bookshop downtown. I was pulling all these resources from PBS. I can't believe I didn't just mention that. But yeah, oh man, so many exciting things happening in A209. That's great, Kim. Keep your light shining, as they like to say. <laughs> and thinking about Shakespeare leads in a way to our final digital innovator today. Yes. He teaches drama and musical theater at the Frank Sinatra High School of the Arts in Astoria, Queens, which was founded by native Astorian Tony Bennett. Welcome, Jamie Cacciolo-Price. Jamie, great to have you. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. I note with interest that you had a major production of Hairspray in 2020. Everything was going great. You played one weekend and then it was over. Yeah, it was it was crushing. I think in hindsight, they did get one weekend of their shows where a lot of other things didn't happen for a long time. It took us a little while to sort of get into the mindset of how do we move forward when it stopped when the finish line kept getting pushed further and further. I was in rehearsals for another show at the same time that was supposed to go up in June, which was featuring some of my seniors that year. And I was like, what am I, what are we gonna do with this? I, and I felt like creating routine for them and myself was really necessary during that time. And so I forced us to continue having rehearsals over Zoom and sort of learned how to navigate that process. I even made them stand up in their rooms using a number line like I do in the rehearsal space so that in the event we could come back into performance, they would know the blocking. And then it, we realized, this isn't going to happen. So what am I going to do? So we created a Zoom production. And so I had to quickly learn the skills to do this, quickly learn how to edit. Thank goodness I have help from a wonderful production manager at our school, Andre Vasquez. That was the only way any shows happened that year. So going into the next school year, number one, I think one of the challenges for performance, live performance skills is that we were having to manage disappointment a lot, right? How do you promise opportunities that may not happen? Or how do you get kids excited about doing something that may have an audience or may not online? I went into choosing shows that I wouldn't be able to do in a traditional year because of the casting restrictions that COVID presented. So we ended up doing a musical Songs for a New World that we had to create an audio soundtrack for it and film 
in some theaters and around New York City, like they do with movie musicals. We did an original show where the kids wrote their own pieces. It's an annual production. It's called Breaking Our Silence about bullying and peer victimization and all things that kids want to talk about. And that worked by filming one student at a time and then putting it all together. And then, especially in the time of racial reckoning that we've been having, I think that Last year was great in that traditionally I have to cast around 30 kids in one production in the spring, not in the musical, but in our studio productions. And it's really hard to find productions that are large cast that are created by writers of color or queer writers traditionally because they're not produced on a larger scale to have large casts. So I was able to actually use material that we would never get to do because I could only put three or four kids in a play. And so we staged them on Zoom and then we put them into a theater space with masks and actually filmed five plays, five full-length one-acts that had been professionally done before. So in a season where we shouldn't have really had any expectation for performance, we created more work than we ever have. We did seven shows in the pandemic on top of countless showcases and things. So I know that the audience component of that was missing, but the work itself and being able to create was something that they were still able to have. And I'm really proud of that. To be able to tap into all of those other techniques, film techniques and TV techniques and editing techniques sort of expanded your ability to do things. Uh, Yeah. Absolutely. Part of your work is emphasizing diversity and social justice through drama and theater and promoting underrepresented voices. You mentioned your program called Breaking Our Silence. Breaking Our Silence is a show that the students write themselves in their sophomore year, and it's it's their first main stage production at Frank Sinatra in the drama studio. They don't usually get on stage as freshmen, so it's a big deal to them from a performance lens and sort of a little bit of a passing the torch type of event for each class at that point. And they take a lot of pride in the experience, but it's not just the opportunity to be on stage. It's We start the first couple of weeks of that school year by starting to talk about things that are really difficult to talk about and things that they may not talk about. They journal about things from ranging from sexual assault, harassment, homophobia, racism, anything that they want to bring to the table that they feel comfortable to share from a personal lens, they're welcome to. And it takes some time to get all that material out there. But once they do, it builds a strong foundation within the company, realizing that you're not alone in these situations, right? Kids talk about having cut themselves or having suicidal thoughts or having anxiety or depression, which is very common with students these days that them recognizing within their ensemble first that I didn't realize that that person had the same struggles that I did. It forms a really strong ensemble. And then the purpose of it, once we get all this writing down, is I have the task of sort of deciding what are the elements of this we're going to put in. We put this piece together. And the thing about the show is that the audience, when they see it, it's specifically peer audience, we have a talk back and kids stand up in tears talking about that they feel like they've been heard, that this group is representing their voice and their generation. And it brings around social awareness in our school community that shifts the school's culture a little bit. And I feel like if that's one thing that theater can do, um, Mm -hmm. if we can't change everything, but we can work within what's in our school community, it has a major impact. And I'm really proud of it. If you had to sum up what the major takeaway was for you from Digital Innovators, what would that be? 
It started out as sort of an extended professional learning opportunity, which was great. At that point, we were not new to online learning, but we were at a point where we needed to mix things up a little bit. So being able to get new resources and to learn how others were using resources was really invaluable. While I've used some of these resources before, I didn't quite fully understand how many were available. So that was great. As a teacher, even if you're a teacher of a decade, when you're working on lesson planning and you're trying to find content, it's it can be an exhausting process. It's good to know that you don't have to start from scratch, that you can use these pre-designed lessons or even just the video components of it or whatever that you need is just there and easily accessible. So PBS uh, Digital Learning Media has been a lifesaver many times over this process, especially when teaching online and you had to get them watching videos and doing things that maybe I don't always do in a drama classroom. But the other thing that I think was really important for all of us, being a teacher in this time has been such a challenge. And I think a lot of us have always looked for the silver lining and always have to be positive. And certainly for our students, we don't want them to get a sense that we're concerned or that we're down. It was great to have a panel of educators together that understood what this process was looking like and what this, how exhausting the process was, learning to reteach. A little group therapy. It was, it was, it was helping all of us just because we understood each other, we spoke the same language and to know that it wasn't just in our own little bubble, but it was in other schools too. We took comfort in that. I took a lot of comfort in that. I really looked forward to our meetings. It was really wonderful. It was a very special opportunity. What do you feel is the best thing about being a teacher? I love teaching because of my students. Uh, I, that's a you know probably a fairly generic teacher thing to say, but I get asked all the time. Like I'm finishing my doctorate right now, and people are like, "What are you going to do with that? Are you going to go and teach college, or are you gonna, what are you going to do?" No, I'm probably going to stay exactly where I am because I love it so much. I don't want to be an administrator. I want to stay within the classroom. Initially, when I decided to shift out of performance. It was sparked largely because of LGBT suicides happening across the country. One specifically, Tyler Clementi, that happened on the George Washington Bridge, which at the time was near where I lived. And I felt like I, as a, as a gay man, needed to be in schools making kids aware that it is okay to be yourself. And that very same day, I actually went and applied to graduate school. And I get to have that type of impact on students every day. I fully live myself in the classroom. I don't hide anything about myself in the classroom. I think for that reason, that transparency has made other students, even if it's some slight element of modeling, it's made them feel more comfortable with themselves. But then also to teach what I love to do. It's not a traditional classroom. I don't teach core content. I teach theater, which is something that I love. And getting to see people in the creative process really struggle to initially and then go through that final performance. And you know in that moment that it is something they will remember the rest of their lives. Absolutely. One of their proudest moments. And I get to be there for so many of those. I wouldn't want to miss those opportunities. So I'm very, very thankful to be a representative for the queer community in a classroom and also to be an arts teacher that just beams with pride every single show, every single day at how amazing all of my students are. Nationally right now, depending upon where you are or where your listeners are, where students are. It's not, it's not necessarily the safest space for our, our queer and transgender students. And I just want to thank the educators that are in those schools who are the safe space 
for those students. Maybe it's an arts program, maybe it's an English teacher. I just know that teachers often are the people that are helping save those students' lives. And I thank them for staying in their schools despite this challenging time and being there for them. Great point. Well, thank you, Jamie Cacciola-Price. And we're back again with Hannah Daw and Christina Kirtley from the WNET Group's Kids Media and Education Department. These digital innovators are all pretty amazing people. We agree. <laughs> They're wonderful. They are. They're amazing. What did you guys learn from being involved with them and the 10 additional DIs that we're not hearing from today? Oh, what a great question. I'm excited to hear what Christina says as well. One of my biggest takeaways is that there are so many shared experiences that educators are having, and there are so many distinct experiences. And that is why I think it's so crucial that we've had a group of teachers who we've been working with throughout the year because what happens district to district, what happens in elementary school versus high school, it's really so distinct and there's no one size fits all necessarily. At the same time, there's a lot that binds everyone together and that are really shared experiences. And I think that that was a really helpful reminder for me about teaching in the state of education, especially now, and the importance of being in touch regularly with teachers who are in the classroom doing it day in, day out for those who are collaborating with teachers and those who really want to understand what's happening in classrooms. One thing that I was going to share just to add to what Hannah was saying about what we've learned in this program, I taught high school English in the Bronx for five years many moons ago, but being with this group of teachers over the last two years has really been a reminder to me that, that the profession can feel kind of lonely sometimes. And I feel like these teachers, they need community and they need to feel like their voice and their ideas are valued and elevated. I feel like this group have really been there for each other because they're from coming from very different school districts. I mean, some are from, of course, the, the massive New York City DOE, but some are from smaller districts in our viewing area. So there, there are, have been differences in terms of the, the resources that are available to them and the kind of support they get from administration and that sort of thing. But yet they're all teachers and they've all gone into this because they have a love for learning, because they want to be there for their students. And I feel like they're also wanna be there for each other. And they recognize that there's a real crisis in the field of education in terms of attracting and retaining talent and those who should be in the classroom, keeping them there. And you know, it makes me think of right now, our DIs are working on what they're calling a love letter to teachers. And it's just these, these little snippets of almost like what you can imagine being on like a post-it note of words of encouragement for other educators. And I feel like that really speaks to the group as a whole and the overall sort of feeling and positive energy that this group has really shown us over the last two years. What will be the future of the Digital Innovator Program? Well, I think once an innovator, always an innovator. Once <laughs> they'll always be part of the DI family. And I'm sure that we will keep in touch with them and try to reach out to them as opportunities arise. But it's a two-year program, so we'll be bringing in a new cohort. Very exciting. Now, I know that this is not the only activity of kids' media and education. You recently had something else called the Youth Summit. What is the Youth Collective and what is the Summit? 
Youth Collective is a project that Christine and I both work on along with our colleague, Michelle Chen. And it's a media and education initiative that aims to amplify youth voice and provide a platform for young people to engage in the work of building a more ethical world. We create media and we every year hold an annual summit. We work with a board of youth advisors who are an incredible group of young people from across our viewing area in high school and early college. And we collaborate with them to plan the summit and to work on our other projects, the focus on misinformation and ethics. What was really cool was, you know, our youth advisors selected this topic back in September. And so we've been working on it all year. And by the time we held the summit, it felt more important and more relevant than ever. So we held our summit, our youth advisors led activities and we had a youth panel. So it was a really exciting event and one that we look forward to every year. And just to point out, this was all done virtually. It was once upon a time it happened in real life, but it has indeed been virtual the last two years. Well, hopefully that will change sometime in the very near future. Well, again, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And for more information, you can go to wnet.org education. And special thanks to our digital innovators, Clemencia Acevedo, Kimberly Dixteen Hughes, Jean Kim, and Jamie Cacciola-Price. And again, thanks to Hannah and Christina. So wonderful to talk to you. To our audio engineer, Josh Broom, and to our executive producer, Dana McBride. And thank you for listening. You can share your questions and comments with us at upnext at wnet.org, and please do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design, On-Air Promotion, Fundraising, and Traffic Department of the WNET Group. I'm Tom Stewart. <laughs>